0: Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, episode five, Denounce the Oppressors. Rosalie Cherrier wasn't going to put up with this Patriot nonsense. She lived in the heart of Patriot country in lower Canada, in the village of Saint-Denis, along the Richelieu River, just east of Montreal. Cherrier was actually a cousin of the great Louis-Joseph Papineau himself but she was no Patriot supporter. And by early September of 1837, she had had just about enough. All summer, the Patriot anger and radicalism had been growing ever more fierce. Her neighbors in the village demanded that everyone join with them in denouncing the bureaucrats and the Chateau Clique. They roamed the countryside to make their case, demanding that anyone who held a position with the government as a militia captain or a magistrate, resign their commissions. For Rosalie Sheria, it was the effigies that were the final straw. A crowd of local patriots had gathered in the town square to ritually taunt and attack the straw creations that were meant to look like the Governor-Lord Gosford and various Vendus, that is, former patriots, who had been won over by Gosford. When they proceeded to hang the governor and his supporters in effigy, Rosalie Cherrier decided that was enough. Heedless of the danger to herself, Cherrier marched into the crowd and tore down the insulting signs attached to the effigies. And as if that wasn't enough, and maybe to show that she actually didn't care for her own safety, she proceeded to lecture the crowd on why they were so wrong. Although Cherie seems to have been allowed to leave unharmed, later that night the local Patriot struck back. Dressing up in disguises with masks and blackened faces, they picked up clubs and farm tools and pots to bang, and they gathered outside Cherie's home that night to shout their displeasure. They subjected her to what was called a Charivari. A Charivari was a form of rough communal justice common among many different European peoples in the pre-modern era. The crowd of townspeople banged their pots and shouted insults. They demanded she back down and recant her ill-gotten views. Now typically, Chervaries were used by communities to voice their displeasure at what were seen to be odd marriages, when a woman only recently widowed married a brother-in-law, or when a man or a woman in a newly married couple was considered much too old for the other. A bit of rough music, some threats and taunts would suffice. To make the whole thing go away, usually the couple could come out and pay a debt, giving money to the local parish, to charity, but also to pay the crowd to buy them probably drinks. Once this happened, and you paid your debt, as it were, all would be well. But in this summer and autumn of 1837, in these tumultuous political times, the rough communal justice of the Sharavari turned from marriage to politics, and it showed up on the doorsteps of anyone who dared to openly defy the Patriot. Cherier though, wasn't one to be cowed. She put up with it for one night, but the next day she bought a gun and melted down her spoons for ammunition. When the crowd came for her the next night, she was ready. When they attacked the house, shots rang out from inside onto the crowd. The shots hit two people in the crowd. It was never clear if the shooter had been Rosalie Cherier herself, but the crowd didn't care. They shouted in anger, and Cherrier only barely managed to escape out a back window with her daughter. But the crowd had their revenge, tearing down her home and leaving only a heap of rubble. Rosalie Cherrier's story was dramatic, but not unique. In the summer and autumn of 1837, Patriots in Lower Canada unleashed a campaign of calculated political terror across the countryside. The political tensions had been mounting for several years, now exploded in 1837. What had once been a fight over the Constitution burst into the lives of everyday Lower Canadians. Just as with Rosalie Cherrier, neighbor threatened neighbor, and all with one central question at the heart of the conflict. Are you with us, or are you against us? So far, we've established the context in the Canadas on the eve of rebellion. We've seen the emergence of a tense political situation in the Canadas. In Upper Canada, a reform movement saw the political system in that colony as unjust, especially its domination by a small nepotistic group that they called the Family Compact. The most radical of these reformers, William Lyon Mackenzie, had become a symbol of political reform and had steadily become dissatisfied with loyal reform and more enamored of American-style republicanism. In Lower Canada, the same kind of American republicanism infused a more complicated political situation, where French-Canadian reformers were determined to wrest control of the Constitution away from British officials and the British minority in Lower Canada. These were democratic liberals and republicans who wanted an end to the power of the appointed Legislative Council and what it represented, that is, the power of a chateau clique, or the bureaucrats, as they were sometimes called. At the head of the movement was one Louis-Joseph Papineau, The Patriot had passed their 92 resolutions through the assembly and had demanded a reply. Until they received an answer, that is a reformed constitution, they were determined to shut down the government in the colony. Officials would not be paid. Legislation would not be passed. And that is where things sat until the spring of 1837, when a western bound ship brought news of the British answer. And as we just saw at the end of last week's episode, the Patriot didn't like the response that came from over the sea. The spark that set Lower Canada ablaze was Lord John Russell's resolutions. The British government had been weighing what to do about Lower Canada for some time. They had sent Gosford as governor and appointed him to head a commission of inquiry in the hope that some form of conciliation would be possible. But by the early spring of 1837, although some radicals in the British Parliament agreed with the Patriot and argued for significant change, the majority backed the plan put forward by then Home Secretary, Lord John Russell. The Patriot had their 92 resolutions and now Russell provided 10 more. Because why not just add a few more resolutions? Now, as I mentioned last day, The Patriot largely interpreted Russell to be simply saying no to rejecting their main claim for major constitutional change and a devolution of power. But it's worth pointing out that although this largely went over everyone's head in the moment, the Russell Resolutions actually added to that no, ah, maybe this instead. Are we going to get an elected legislative council? No, said the Russell Resolutions. But Russell agreed that something needed to be done to boost the legitimacy of this institution in Lower Canada. Will the Executive be answerable to the Assembly? No, said Russell, but we can change its composition to make it more palatable. Russell did offer to get rid of a few of the annoying pieces of legislation related to land, at least as long as the Assembly would grant certain land rights themselves. Then there was this nasty question of funding the lower Canadian government. The British had been paying for the cost of government, something they felt the Assembly ought to have been paying for the last several years. Many expenses had simply gone unpaid. Money was owed. This was the weapon that the Patriot wielded. So the Russell resolutions empowered the governor to take this monetary weapon away from the colony anyway, to pay up the expenses in arrears. As for the future, the British agreed to hand over the control of finances in the colony to the Assembly if, and this was a big if, the Assembly agreed to pay for the cost of a modest civil list, that is, the expenses of some of the fixed costs of government. In other words, if you agree to pay these fixed costs on an ongoing basis, then you can control the rest of the budget. None of this went over well in Lower Canada. Now, some of this can seem a little distant and bureaucratic but we are essentially talking about taxes and sovereignty, democracy and money. The details may seem archaic, but people always get angry over taxes. The ship bearing these fateful resolutions sailed into Quebec City in early April and, well, the mayor hit the fan. Indignation and anger spread like a runny nose in a kindergarten class. The Vindicator, that paper started by our good friend Daniel Tracy, he of the ill-fated by-election victory and riots back in 1832, it set the tone for righteous anger. The Vindicator claimed that the British may have thought that Lower Canada was like an Ireland in America, a colony to be exploited, but they were about to find out that what they really had on their hand was a Massachusetts, you know, one of the colonies that rebelled. And if that didn't get the message across, the Vindicator made its point even clearer. Henceforth, the editor declared, there must be no peace in the province. Agitate, agitate, agitate. Destroy the revenue. Denounce the oppressors. Everything is lawful when our fundamental liberties are in danger. So, yeah, that tells you where things stood. The General Patriot response was, no way we ain't going to let this go by. The question was what to do. Luckily, or maybe unluckily, the Patriot had a useful recent historical example of how to deal with a pesky British empire that just wouldn't listen to assertive colonials. Of course, I'm talking about the United States, or really the 13 colonies who rebelled to become the United States. And so the Patriot began to organize a resistance which, while it's still rooted in French Canadian culture and centered on the local Catholic parish, nonetheless bore an uncanny and entirely purposeful similarity to what Americans had done a couple of generations before. First, they held meetings public agitation meetings and then at these meetings they passed resolutions because who doesn't need more resolutions? The first of the great anti-Russell resolutions meetings, these agitation meetings, took place on May 7, 1837 in Saint-Ours, a small village north and east of Montreal on the Richelieu River. Remember this area, the Richelieu River Valley area because this would be one of the hotspots of patriot support and activity in the rebellion to come. Generally, these meetings followed a typical pattern and expressed the same kinds of sentiments. The first, of course, was disgust. Disgust at the Russell resolutions and the lack of respect, locals felt that these resolutions showed for the civil rights of the habitants. The Russell resolutions were, said one, the strongest of attacks on the weakest of rights. Next came the boycott. They would hit the British in the pocketbook. The Patriot paper La Minerve spoke of it as smuggling on a grand scale. Dry up the revenue. Only once the British were bereft of taxes would they realize their mistake. To put this kind of plan into action required organization. Committees were established to organize the boycott and to keep up the protest. At St. Ours and then at other meetings, resolutions came forward declaring that les Canadiens could no longer trust the British. And then others spoke of how really it was the Americans who were the habitant's natural ally. They must look south of the border for help. This is not the last time that we'll see this hope for American assistance, this assumption that when it really mattered, the Americans would help. Finally, the meeting at St. Ours also elected delegates to send to a general convention to be held later in the year. A general convention bringing delegates from all across lower Canada. That too should sound rather familiar, kind of like the Continental Congress held very early on in the American Revolution. It was the General Convention idea, in fact, especially when combined with the general tenor of the meetings that ultimately drew the ire of Governor Gosford. The Governor was still himself committed to reconciling differences. In fact, he remained committed to trying to find some kind of a compromise until long after this had clearly become a ludicrous idea. But even Gosford could see where the American-style rhetoric and talk of a general convention was heading, and so he tried, wholly unsuccessfully, to put a stop to it. On June 15th, he banned all further seditious meetings, you know, these meetings where people gathered only to encourage resistance to legitimate authority. And he particularly instructed the officers of the state, that is, magistrates and militia officers, to oppose and avoid all such meetings in the future. Back in England, Lord John Russell and the cabinet were already backstepping. King William IV died late in June, and this gave the British an opportunity to pull back Parliament was dissolved, awaiting the coronation of the new Queen Victoria, and so the British government temporarily withdrew the offensive Russell Resolutions. In early July, they even arranged to provide funding to the governor to pay the arrears owed by the Lower Canadian Assembly. The Russell Resolutions, remember, had allowed the governor to simply take the money. But no longer. In other words, the Brits could see that events were escalating in their colony and they tried to step back from the abyss. That wasn't, though, going to happen. Gosford's ban on meetings didn't work and the British conciliating gestures didn't either. The agitation meetings continued, but it wasn't the daytime gatherings that really showed what was wrong. It was what happened at night Sharavari justice took over many parts of Lower Canada. Gangs of habitants took to the fields at night to whip up support for the Patriot cause. They especially focused on those representatives of the state in local areas, the magistrates and militia officers. These were often the only real link in any area with the far-off government. When Gosford withdrew commissions from Patriot-supporting officers and magistrates for failing to stop the meetings, this only urged the crowd to respond in kind. They put pressure on all militia officers and magistrates to resign. If the government was unjust, if Gosford would not see the injustice of his actions, then it became dishonorable to serve. Now, there were quite a few local militia officers and magistrates who agreed. They happily gave up their commission and wrote to Gosford to resign. But the crowd wasn't happy just with the vocal supporters. If an officer didn't resign, he would be visited by the Sharaveri. The crowd would call him out at night, throw stones through his windows, threaten to burn his barn and his crops. One of the favorite punishments was to shave off the tail or mane of someone's horse. Then, everyone could see who was publicly doubting the cause. A whole lot of horses got haircuts in the summer and autumn of 1837. For the most part, the crowd withheld from actual violence. There were a few instances where things went wrong, like with Rosalie Cherhier, where we began this episode. But for the most part, this was all about nighttime threats and community intimidation. And that was often sufficient. The resignations poured into the government offices, though often with long explanations about how the resignation only came under duress. There was little authorities could do to stop the breakdown of the rule of law. The area heaviest hit by Cherivary Justice surrounded the Lake of Two Mountains, just north and west of Montreal. It was a relatively prosperous area, but also one with quite a mixed population divided between French and English, long-time residents and newcomers. Tensions were high, and the stakes for the Patriot of ensuring that local residents were on-side politically were also significant. In mid-July, the government tried to bring some of those accused of illegal activities to justice, but they soon realized how limited was their power. Two teams of constables were sent out from Montreal to go to the local area and apprehend those accused of breaking the law in the various Cheravaries. It wasn't easy. One constable was accosted while putting up wanted posters at a tavern The other tavern patrons didn't agree with his idea of justice. They suggested instead that there should be a reward of 100 pounds for the arrest of Governor Gosford. They also conversationally suggested to the constable that a fit punishment for the chief constable would be to strip him naked and leave him on top of a local hill for the mosquitoes to eat. A lovely idea of Canadian torture if ever there was one. But even while this constable was learning what the locals thought of him, another group of constables was barely escaping with one suspect they had been able to find. It hadn't been easy. The locals were no help and of course professed not to know where any of the suspects were or even where their farms were. Once the constables arrested one of their wanted men, they quickly backtracked. All along the route though, Crowds of people came to the roads to shout insults at them. The constables arrived at the ferry only just in time and ordered the ferrymen at gunpoint to take them back across the river to Montreal. Even as they retreated across the water, a crowd of patriot supporters showed up armed with guns and pitchforks. They shot a few rounds into the air to show their displeasure and likely as a warning about what would happen if the constables came back. So, yeah, law and order had officially broken down. A few weeks later, the French ambassador to the United States decided to visit Lower Canada, and on the way, he stopped to pay his respects to Louis-Joseph Papineau. The two dined together and attended one of the agitation meetings. The habitants sang the Marseillaise, and called each other citizen. To say that this would set off alarm bells for any British government officials in the years after the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars would be to put it mildly. But this wasn't a summer for British Empire loyalty. Things didn't go well in August when churches across Lower Canada held their traditional Deum, the mass held to welcome in a new monarch. In this case, of course, it was Queen Victoria. From across the colony came reports that parishioners harumphed their way through the ceremony. Some simply walked out. Others shouted, Vive Papineau! And some churches refused to ring the bells in her honour. Yet Gosford still hoped to find a compromise. He met the assembly later in August in the hope of finding a way out of the mess but the Patriot members were as unbending as before. Unless and until the demands of the 92 resolutions were met, there was nothing to be done. The English-speaking press mocked the funny costume of some Patriot who were dressed in wholly local clothes so as to support the boycott. But Papineau and the Patriot had the last laugh. They withdrew from the assembly after only a few days. Without the Patriot, the Assembly did not have quorum and had to be prorogued. Government had well and truly reached a standstill. It was in the autumn, as late summer warmth slipped away and the leaves turned red and yellow, that the defiance switched to outright rebellion. A year or so earlier, the British minority in Lower Canada had tried to organize their own paramilitary group, the British Rifle Corps, Some local British were alarmed at Gosford's conciliation, and if he wouldn't do something to show staunch defiance, then they would take things into their own hands. Gosford, though, you'll remember, ever mindful to make a good impression, had disallowed the group's charter and not given them leave to officially organize. But this hadn't stopped the Loyalists from preparing. It merely drove them underground. They formed an organization called the Doric Club kind of fraternal lodge, but whose main goal was to represent the interests of the loyal constitutionalists, the British minority in the colony. In August, the Patriots decided it was their turn, and they looked to the American Revolution for their example. They called their new group the Fils de la Liberté, the Sons of Liberty. Now in the American case, the Sons of Liberty had been a paramilitary organization meant to undermine British authority in the colonies. The Fils de la Liberté, the lower Canadian version, was less secretive. From late August, they took to gathering each Sunday, taking advantage of the large groups who would otherwise gather for mass on Sundays. They paraded, marched, and performed military drills. Each week in Montreal, through the autumn, their numbers grew. They would also meet in smaller groups through the week to train. And they didn't hide their purpose. In early October, the Sons of Liberty published their manifesto declaring that the people of Lower Canada deserved a government of their own choice. Hint, hint, it wasn't going to be headed by Gosford, nor was it going to contain a legislative council the manifesto went on to say that French Canadians had already let two occasions go by to become their own sovereign people. That is, if you're counting, the American Revolution and then the War of 1812. They might have missed those chances, but they weren't going to let this one, their third chance, go by without taking action. On October 1st, at another agitation meeting, this one at St. Benoit in the Two Lakes region that we talked about earlier, where the constables had been chased away. The meeting resolved to take things even further. It was no longer enough to demand the resignations of militia officers and magistrates. The Patriot now decided to create their own officers and magistrates. Law and the military would be taken over by the people. The official state would now exist only in name. As one Patriot paper put it, let the revolution begin. The biggest public meeting yet came in late October at Saint-Denis, in the hometown of Rosalie Cherrier, where we began today's episode. As many as 5,000 people gathered from counties all around Saint-Denis to hear Patriot leaders and pass resolutions which drew everyone closer to open rebellion. The crowd raised a liberty poll, a tribute to Papineau and the new nation he was now seen to head. But Papineau himself seems to have already been somewhat sidelined next to even more radical voices. Speakers claimed that the provincial government existed only in name. And to make their point real, they followed up on what had happened the previous month in Two Lakes. They too called for the election of their own militia officers and their own magistrates. They would set up their own state within a state, ready for the day when the old state would be sloughed off entirely. The time had come, said another, to melt the spoons, that is, to make musket balls and be ready for action. Delegates were elected to a general convention to be held in December. It was already late October. By winter, when the rivers and lakes froze, that would be the time to act. Then, the troops in the colony would be cut off from reinforcements, the Abitants could move freely about the colony, and they would take their nation into their own hands. But if the Patriot were chomping at the bit to get on with this rebellion business, they didn't speak for everyone in the colony, not even all French Canadians the Catholic Church, which played such a large role in the life in Lower Canada, was officially and decidedly against rebellion, even if some individual priests felt otherwise. The late October meeting at St. Charles pushed the Bishop of Montreal, Bishop Lartigue, to denounce rebellion openly, and to demand that all the priests in the colony do the same the bishop wrote a pastoral letter to all lower Canadians to be read out by priests from the pulpit that gave the church's official position on rebellion. Simply put, don't do it. But Lartigue did more than this. He made a moral and religious case against rebellion. By the 1830s, the Catholic Church had a significant amount of experience dealing with rebellions, and the memory of the anti-clerical French Revolution and its deadly violence against priests and the taking of church property meant that they had developed some significant guidelines. Lartigue explained to Lower Canadians that it was morally wrong to rebel against constituted authority. He put it in the words not of politics, but of faith. This wasn't your king or your governor speaking, he implied. It was your God. Now, some no doubt took him seriously, and the admonitions of priests across the colony. But opinion was divided. L'Artigue's pastoral letter, his official decree, was read out across the colony from priests in the pulpit. In some parts of the colony, though, when priests read out L'Artigue's letter, parishioners walked out of the church, or they shouted slogans like Vive Papineau, or Abbas l'Eveque, down with the bishop, and they sang the ever-revolutionary Marseillaise. Conflict finally boiled over in Montreal in that city so divided between the different factions, set up so close next to each other, house by house, with the Sons of Liberty living cheek by jowl alongside the Doric Club, the rival sides were almost bound to get into action. The precipitating cause was a planned march by the Sons of Liberty for Monday, November 6th. For weeks, the Sons of Liberty marches had been growing and their opponents had seen enough, seeing in these marches signs of outright disloyalty and treason. The Doric Club sent depositions to local magistrates, saying that the Sons of Liberty were planning to march and parade through the streets on November 6th. The Doric Club would be bound to respond, and so violence would ensue. In response, the magistrates forbade any such public gatherings. They met with Papineau and other leaders of the Sons of Liberty, especially a man named Thomas Storrow Brown. Brown was an English-Canadian who had become a leader of the Sons of Liberty and was seen by those in the English community as a turncoat, much like Patriots viewed those former French-Canadian allies who accepted appointments by the governor as themselves turncoats or vendus, as they were called. Brown insisted that the meetings must go ahead and promised, he really promised, that all would be peaceful. Monday, November 6th came, and the Sons of Liberty went ahead with their meetings. They gathered in a tavern that opened out onto St. James Street, the Street of Blood from back in 1832. Rousing speeches inside the meeting stirred up the Sons about their mission. But outside the tavern, a small group of loyalists connected to the Doric Club had gathered. They were determined to stir up a bit of trouble. They shouted insults at the crowd and threw stones. The Sons finished up their meeting and then decided that they would show these fellows who really controlled the streets of Montreal. With batons and a few guns to hand, the Sons of Liberty turned and swept the small group of Doric Club supporters from the streets. They chased stragglers to the homes of local loyalist supporters and threw their own stones, smashing windows as they went. But this wasn't the end of the fight. The first group of Dorics who had been harassing the Sons of Liberty were only stragglers. The Doric club had set up posters over the weekend calling all loyal subjects to gather on the Monday and not allow the rebellious Sons of Liberty to march. The leader of the Sons of Liberty, Thomas Storrow Brown, was the first to go down. Heading home, he came across a gang of Dorics who attacked him. He was hit over the back of the head with a cudgel. He escaped, alive, but would lose sight in one of his eyes from the wounds. Other Doric supporters now took control of the streets, clashing with Sons of Liberty wherever they saw them. They also attacked Papineau's home before moving on to the offices of the paper, the Vindicator, Here, they broke in and trashed the place, throwing the presses out into the street. By this point, magistrates had called out the troops from the garrison to restore order. Eventually, that's exactly what they did, but not before the Doric club gangs had attacked the homes of other Patriot supporters. The crowd tended to be angriest at the English-speaking Patriots. It wasn't the first nor the last time that the crowd's anger on both sides would be most harshly directed to those who they thought were like them, or should be, but supported the other side. The narcissism of small differences is what Freud called this little joy of human nature where people hate not their furthest enemies, but those closest to them who differ only a little. Finally, At this point in the midst of the revolutionary gatherings and the setting up of a state within a state and violence on the streets, Governor Gosford seems to have realized that things had gone too far, that conciliation probably wasn't going to work. He sent off to England for permission to impose martial law and suspend habeas corpus. He gave in to the urgings for action by the military commander in the colony. This was Lord Colborne, Remember him, of Waterloo fame, and former governor of Upper Canada, who the British had asked to stay on to take charge of the military in British North America. Colborn hadn't gone anywhere, and he had been pushing Gosford to be more assertive and clamp down on dissidents. Finally, Gosford seems to have got it. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was a rumoured French link which finally pushed him over the edge. There were rumors of French military officers having arrived in the colony to advise the Patriot. It's not clear if this was even true, but it was at least enough for Gosford. In mid-November, he issued arrest warrants for Patriot leaders. He would round up the ringleaders and put an end to this once and for all. Governor Gosford stepped back and the British General John Colborne took charge the time for compromise was well and truly over. Next week, we'll be right back in Lower Canada in November and December of 1837. Gosford steps aside, as does in part Papineau, and the more militant of the actors on both sides step to the front. The time for talk was over, and it was literally time to melt down the spoons to make musket balls and even better to go to the United States for arms and ammunition. We won't forget Upper Canada. The reformers there were watching what was happening in Lower Canada, some with both alarm and others with enthusiasm. But for the moment, we'll hold off on that part of the story, for it was in Lower Canada, and especially south and east of Montreal, along the shores of the Richelieu River, that the major military phase of the rebellions of 1837 would begin. And that's where we go next week. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, Please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, We're starting with the rebellions, but we'll move on from there to other great topics in Canadian political history. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Jessica Clement with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember... There's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.